tonight, 7 o'clock. We're going to have a great time, a great concert. The guys will be back to share a parting word, maybe summarize some of the things they said. We're going to have some wonderful music and worship the Lord. I'd just like you to think about the fact that tonight is not something you attend, but tonight is something you are going to do. And uh, to simplify it, worship uh, is us giving God praise, isn't it? God's the audience, and uh, we're here to offer him our best. I hope you'll come tonight with a heart ready to praise the Lord. We'll just have a great, great evening tonight, and uh, we want to encourage you to be a part of it. Uh, In the past years at our Bible conference, we've had some kind of outside uh, guests, but we thought it would really be good this time to just have our own and to minister to the Lord together, and we're going to do that tonight at 7 o'clock. Is that right? Uh, Also, tomorrow night, I want to remind you that we have a huge night athletically right here in this multi-purpose facility. Um, The women's basketball team is at 5.30 going to play the University of California at Santa Cruz. Now, uh, I don't know if you know about them. They have a very interesting uh, name. You know, some schools like the Nebraska Cornhuskers and the Florida Gators and the Miami Hurricanes. They are the University of California at Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. Now, it doesn't work real well on a basketball floor to be a banana slug. But anyway, this is a strange school. Uh, if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz is a strange town, frankly. But anyway, so our um, great girls basketball team are going to take on some banana slugs tomorrow night at 5.30. If you want to see what that looks like, come. Uh, then at 7.30, uh, the men are going to play the number one ranked team in the country in uh, NC2A Division II, Bakersfield, you know, Cal State Bakersfield. I think they're 13, 14, 15, and 0. Uh, it's going to be tough. They called up the college and wanted 1,000 tickets for their boosters in Bakersfield. And uh, Bill Oates wisely said, <clears throat> come early and get in line. So uh, I'm warning you, you're going to get over here tomorrow night for that girls' game so you'll be in place, ready to go when a men's game starts and you don't get your seat taken uh, by some of these other people coming down from Bakersfield to root on what's going to be a great, great uh, basketball game. So that's tomorrow night. Well, it has been just a joy for us to share in these great days together with uh, our friends who come from their churches. I really do want you to see how God is blessing young men in ministry in in their churches. These guys have very significant church ministries, fast-growing churches that have a high profile in the various cities across the country. And and I want uh, particularly, of course, you men to think about the fact that uh, God may call you to serve in the greatest ministry of all ministries, and that's in the church which Jesus uh, died to build and uh, promises to bless. So... Uh, We've had a wonderful time having these men here in the dorms and in our sessions here and just mingling with you and meeting you in the cafeteria and around campus. And it's just been a special joy. And uh, this will be my last uh, chance really to thank them. And so I want to do that this morning. Uh, Also, a special joy to bring back this morning one who uh, is not a stranger to us, been here a number of times, comes to us from Cleveland, Ohio, Parkside Church in the Cleveland area, Alistair Begg. Uh, Alistair, I might say, uh, is well known to those of you who've been here in the past, of course, uh, has recently launched a new nationwide radio ministry called Truth for Life, and uh, I have occasion to hear it. What time are you on around here, anyway? 9.30? What is it? Oh, 8.05. Okay, I can't ever remember the times of those programs. 8.05 on KKLA, 99.5 FM on your dial. You can hear Alistair five days a week. What a great treat that is. Alistair, we're glad to have you. Let's welcome Alistair Big. Slight cynicism in the voice. Eh?
Well, good morning. It's a great joy to be here. It's a privilege always to come uh, to this place. If you were to ask my children, and they will probably be as honest as any around me, um, where I like to go the most and the places that I have derived the greatest benefit from, uh, right at the top of the list, it, one of, every one of them without exception will say, uh, when, when he goes to the Master's College. And not least of all, on these occasions here, when I have the privilege of being with these other men, it's not um, always uh, a very uh, uh, gregarious experience being a pastor. No matter where you are, whether it's Cleveland, Ohio, or anywhere else, it can be a lonely event. And every so often, uh, through the journey of the days, it means a tremendous amount to be able to call to mind the faces of men whom you admire in the Lord Jesus, who influence you even from afar in Christ, and whose ministries you know to be grounded in the Scriptures and committed to the exalting of the name of Jesus. And without any deserving on my part, I have been made a part of a group of guys uh, who are that for me. We're not in constant touch with one another. In some cases, it's marginal and minimal. In other cases, it's more so. But nevertheless, it means a tremendous amount. And so I don't take it for granted that I would have the privilege of being in their company in these days. And um, to have the opportunity amongst you uh, is, again, a wonderful uh, joy. Someone has left a note here and left a photograph for me, uh, a camera for me. It says up here, could you please take a photograph of yourself for me? And uh, there's actually a note here. This, this was left, I think, signed John MacArthur. Could you please take it? Um, <laughs> no, I think... So I'm not going to embarrass the person, but it actually says, Dear Alistair, could you please take a picture of yourself for me? And they left the camera up here. This, this has got to be a joke, right? <laughs> but just in case it isn't. <laughs> this is a weird group. I'm actually glad to be here clothed in my right mind on time because as some of you know, I haven't been doing very well on these, uh, what do you call these things, dormitory events? Is that the, 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 the halls of residence, I beg your pardon, halls of residence. Um, I've not been having great success in the halls of residence. I did one good day out of three. The first day was quite good. Uh, second day was a royal mess insofar as I showed up at the, um, what I've come to refer to now as the, the kissing dormitory, uh, hodge, hodge kiss or something it is. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's mixed, but I determined that's what I'll call it from now on anyway. And uh, so I, ca I came there uh, ready to disburse my wisdom, only to discover that one of my noble compatriots was already disbursing his wisdom, and to be told in a kind of gracious way, hit the road. And so yesterday morning I could be seen just sort of wandering around like the village idiot with no one to talk to and nobody really caring. So I said, well, it's okay. We're running 50-50, one good day, one bad day. There's always this morning. So this morning, again, I said, I'll make another go at it. I had your uh, venerable leader in charge of my destiny. He drove me to the place I said I was supposed to go. They told me go to Slight Hall. So he drove me up. He said, well, that's Slight Hall. I said, okay, thank you. Got out of the car, closed the door, 
and uh, we went up to Slate Hall just to be met by door after door after door of closed doors. Venetian blinds all shut down. No, no uh, people either dead in their beds or, or uh, have left the college altogether, something I don't know. So I went, I went once round the lower floor, banging on every second door, nothing. I went upstairs, and then I went once round the top floor, doing the same. Now I'm told that they're going to find me for uh, going up the stairs because seemingly I was banging on girls' bedroom doors. <laughs> so then I go find another of these, you know, dormitories, uh, halls of residence, and find uh, Scott Art of Venice, who's in full stream. And I said, you know, well, why is everybody doing this to me? I mean, why can't, why can't I just go to a place and the people like it when I show up and I'm at the right place? They said, well, because you won't read the instructions that Maddox gave you. If you would read the, the thing, you clown, then you wouldn't be wandering around like this. I said, well, what do I do now? They said, oh, you're supposed to be uh, upstairs behind the gymnasium. I said, that's good. That makes sense. Yes, it says slight hall in the sheet, which should be read as upstairs behind the gymnasium. <laughs> the problem, I say again, is not due to the public relations people of the masters, they are excellent, not due to the department run by Mr. Maddox. It is my own problem with directions. If my wife were here, she'd testify to it. The first time we ever got a tumble dryer, it was a major event. It was 1979, we got our first tumble dryer. Up until that time, we hung everything out on the line. I see when I say we, I mean she. And, um, <laughs> but I used to bring it in every so often. I think I did once. And um, <laughs> so the man brought the tumble dryer and he put it in the front hall. I was so excited about it, I decided, let's tumble it immediately. Let us set up and go. And so uh, largely paying scant attention to the directions, I set the tumble dryer up and um, it, it still makes me smile, it won't perhaps concern you, but uh, I got it going such that when you closed the door, it stopped, and when you opened the door, it fired the clothes all out in the hallway. <laughs> so, that was 79, and I haven't been much better at reading directions ever since. So, thank you very much for uh, inviting me here. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. And verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Father, we pray that with our Bibles open upon our laps again this morning, that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, 
that our minds may be enabled so as to think clearly, that our hearts will be open to receive your truth, and that our feet will be ready to run in the pathway of obedience. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The vastness of the theme under which this particular Bible conference has been convened, namely the love of God, is such that there is an almost inevitability about the fact that no matter how many people address the subject, they must all somehow or another arrive at the same place. And I think that has become apparent in the uh, talks which have already been given and the messages which have already been delivered, insofar as it's virtually impossible to address the theme of the love of God without finally arriving at the whole matter of the atonement, that God's love has been made so manifestly plain to us in the offering of his Son. And this, of course, yesterday morning at this same time was made uh, powerfully clear to us as we listen to Pastor Ardavana speak. I make no apology for arriving essentially at the same point, and what I'd like to do is put, as it were, that same notion into uh, working clothes, into uh, theology in blue jeans, if you like, and simply give to you three simple phrases that emerge from the portion of Scripture that I have just read. These things begin with an expression of God's love towards us, and they call for from us uh, an expression of our love for him. And I want to tell you what they are so that you can uh, look for them there in your Bible, and then you will be able to follow along with me. You'll note that I read from the NIV, and I didn't take time to check it in any other version, but the, fr the three phrases are these, for us, for him, for good. For us, for him, for good. For the grace of God that brings salvation, he says in verse 11, has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and so on. Verse 14, who gave himself for us? For us. That here is this great and wonderful expression of the love of God, that his only begotten Son should be given up for us. Now this, we should note, is no arm's length theology, certainly not on the part of the Apostle Paul. Elsewhere in his writings, Paul personalizes it when he says that the Lord Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And that must ultimately be the discovery and realization of the genuine believer, that the sacrifice of atonement made by Jesus Christ upon the cross included me. And when that dawns upon our souls and infiltrates our minds with conviction and with freshness, many of the hymns that address it come forth from our hearts and through our lips with renewed passion and conviction. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship, for example, should set his love upon the sons of men, nor why as shepherd he should seek the wanderers to bring them back, I know not why or when. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him, but I know whom I have believed, 
and the one in whom I have come to believe, the one upon whose life I have staked my very destiny, is the one who here, as Paul says to Titus, gave himself for us. His, his action and his activity was directed in this way. Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter chapter 1 that unlike the redemption which took place in the slave markets of his day, which came about as a result of the transaction of silver and gold, we, he says of the believers, have not been redeemed, purchased as a result of silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his giving of himself for us, we notice that we have been purchased, purchased, bought, bought out of our slavery to sin and bought into slavery with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for us was a voluntary, necessary, substitutionary, propitiatory, and efficacious sacrifice. Now obviously each of those words could yield a fair amount of time. I simply state them and move on. But come with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews for a moment to make much of this first point. The fact that we have been purchased on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ and in so doing has magnified his love towards us. What has Jesus done upon the cross? Well, he has done many things, but I want you to notice according to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 that Jesus has done all that is necessary in relationship to sin. He has done all that is necessary in relationship to sin. Unlike the high priest, who according to verse 11 of chapter 10, day after day, stands and performs his religious duties again and again, offering the same sacrifices which ultimately can never take away sins, this Jesus, our great high priest, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. Hence again the hymn writer, I need no other sacrifice, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. His love has been made known to me in Christ who has purchased my redemption and in so doing has done all that is necessary in relationship to sin. Also, he has done all that is necessary in relationship to the Father. Verse 12. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And you know your Bibles well enough to recognize that his being seated was an indication of the work being done, of the job being completed. That is why the earthly high priest never sat down, because the job was never done. No sooner had he offered one sacrifice than he had to go back around to the end of the line and proceed to come along again to make another sacrifice for sin, but not Christ. He did all not only in relationship to sin, but he did all in relationship to the Father. What does that mean? It means this, that God is a sin-hating God. And we are therefore by nature, as Paul says in, Ephes in Ephesians, the objects of his wrath. And we therefore stand in need of one 
to bear our sin and to take our place. And it is the satisfaction of the Father's wrath which is the driving factor, not our predicament. And when you had uh, our friend the singer here the last time, Steve Kemp, he expresses this profound and necessary biblical truth in his wonderful song, Christ Died for God. And what he is saying there is that in his atoning death, in this amazing expression of the love of God, not only has he done all that is necessary in relationship to sin in bearing it away, but he has done all that is necessary in relationship to the Father who must punish sin. And that is why at the cross we have the trysting place, as the hymn writer says, where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. And he has also done all in relationship to Satan. He has done everything in relationship to Satan. Now turn just for a moment back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So we notice that in Jesus there is a nature shared so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. So there is a power that is broken. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There is a liberation achieved. And when we gaze upon that cross, it's not supposed to create within us a sense of sentimentalism. If you watch, for example, something like the Jesus film, without any kind of explanation given on the strength of it, and without any background, all you would be forced to conclude is, oh, goodness gracious, what a dreadful thing happened to this chap. Oh, I feel horribly sorry for him, that the whole thing came down on him like this and ended in this way. And without the clarifying information of the Scripture, we may be forced to conclude that at the cross there is nothing more than that which would instigate sentimentalism in us but not at all, because there in the cross the Father's love has been manifest towards us. And in the purchasing of us, he has died for us. He has done it all in relationship to sin. You need do nothing else. He has done all in relationship to the Father. We are accepted, as we noticed yesterday, in the Beloved. And he has done all that is necessary in relationship to Satan. Turn back to Hebrews 10. And to verse 15, we have this, he says, on the highest of authorities. How do you know this? The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First of all, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to what is true concerning us. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to what is true concerning God. Look at verse 17. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. Now what does that mean in practical terms? It means this that the evil one, 
will come and seek to dredge up and drag up sin that has been part and parcel of our lives in the past, which confessed and forgiven is remembered no more, and he, the great accuser of the brethren, will bring it to us. And sometimes there are tragic errors in our past, great disappointments, things that haunt us, frankly. And we're tempted, as it were, to keep coming again and again on our knees to the Lord Jesus, through Christ, to the Father, and to say, Oh, Father, you know, in 1991 and such and such, and I was there and I shouldn't have been, and I did this and it meant that and it caused this, and oh, Lord. And you know what he says? Oh, you do surprise me. I have no record of this. I have no record of this. Your sins and your lawless acts I will remember no more. Now if that isn't love, because even your mom, who really loves you, is not adverse to swinging one out when she needs it. And I remember on the 14th of November, 1993, you did that. Goodness gracious, how do you remember that stuff? I thought you loved me. Oh, I do love you, but sometimes I don't forget. And we've got a sneaking suspicion somehow or another that instead of the fatherhood of God giving the picture of fatherhood to man, it is the fatherhood of man which is then projected up to God and we've got it all upside down. We come to our heavenly father and say, do you love me? You're dead right, I do. You are purchased. He gave himself for us. O Lord of life and glory, says the hymn writer, what bliss till now was thine. I read the wondrous story, I joy to call thee mine. Thy grief and thy compassion were all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. The Father had no contingency plan. It was all focused in the blood of his Son. So it is for us insofar as we are purchased, and also back now in Titus, we are purified, purified. You'll notice that uh, Paul doesn't share our contemporary concern about being negative. One thing you're not supposed to be is negative. You read church bulletins and you... They try and present themselves. They say, we are a positive congregation. And that always makes me smile, uh, whether they are positively negative or negatively positive or whatever they are. But there are times when saying no is a very positive thing. It teaches us to say no. It teaches us to say no. The, the, the atonement has a dual aspect, freeing us from wickedness and cleansing us from impurity. Wickedness being an internal disobedience to God's law and as we are cleansed then from iniquity, we are daily ratifying the decisive beginning wrought by grace, enabling us to learn when to say no and when to say yes. So that our lives then are driven not by guilt, but by genuine gratitude. How could I begin to understand the immensity of the Father's love made clear to me in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for me, for us, without that it made a dramatic impact on my lifestyle. You know, young people, the key to your Christian life and to mine is not to be found in a series of great dramatic surges forward, huge highs and uh, oft times low, but it really is to be found in a steady, persistent commitment to do well most of the time. We were talking about this in our devotional time this morning. Any successful restaurant is ultimately successful because it does the basics well most of the time. It provides cutlery so that people don't have to eat, just digging their faces in the bowl. There are napkins so you can wipe your hands. The, the, the person comes and goes and the food appears and so on. You don't need the girls on roller skates. You don't need bells and whistles. You just need some meat and potatoes and a nice little cup of juice and on your way. It's just as simple as that. And our Christian lives are essentially that. In response to the love of God towards us in the person of his son, we're going to learn to say yes at the right time and no when we should. And every apparently dramatic blowout that you and I have seen in relationship to the demise of someone's apparently effective Christian life may have appeared as though they were going 85 miles an hour on the freeway and the front tire blew out instantaneously, but I can guarantee you the tire had been leaking for months and maybe even years. And where was it leaking? It was leaking insofar as they were not saying no when they should and not saying yes when they should. We used to sing a little chorus in Scotland that said, I met Jesus at the crossroads where the two ways meet. Satan too was standing there and he said, come this way. Lots and lots of pleasures I will give to you today. And we used to do it with hand actions, you know, so you could belt the person next to you. I mean, that, wasn't, that wasn't why they created the hand actions, but it was a good, you know, it was fun to liven up the Sunday school. And, and we did the thing. Lots and lots of pleasures I will give to you today. But I said, no. And we were allowed to shout, which was also fabulous because the Sunday school was dreadfully dull at certain points. We used to say, but I said, no. There's Jesus here. Just see what he offers me. Down here my sins forgiven. And up there a home in heaven. Praise God. That's the way for me. And Forty years after being taught the song, sometimes I'm driving in my car and I'm tempted to the second look. Sometimes the remote control on the TV thing seems to have a life of its, of its own. And suddenly back into my mind comes that little Sunday school teacher. And the, but I said, no. Learning to say no and learning to say yes at the right time in response to the Father's love is the key to effective Christian living. It is, as someone said in the title of a book, a long obedience in the one direction. I spent longer on the first point. I always do. That's for your encouragement. Second phrase is for him. For him. For us. For him. Okay? I never gave you the subpoints really, but I had two. For us, we are purchased and we are purified. Okay? And the purification process is as he conforms us to the image of his son, teaching us to say no to all unrighteousness and saying yes to godly living. Secondly, we are for him. Two, two points again. We are planned and we are peculiar. We are planned from all of eternity. It was God's unmistakable purpose to have a people of his own. 
and it is the utterly undeserved privilege of all who believe to be included in that family. If you wonder about that, you only need to read the Gospel of John and in chapter 6. And some years ago in preaching through John chapter 6, I came to convictions regarding this in my own heart. It just seemed to me I had to believe what the Bible said and what it said, it said it so very clearly. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away for I have not come down from heaven to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. You find the same thing when Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see your glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. You know, we live in a world that is increasingly alone. Um, I was quoting the other evening with the, I think I still have it here, a song by um, police when I spoke to the young people at Grace Church. And this is so expressive of, of so many people's lives at the moment. In this song, um, Sting cries out these words, Everyone I know is lonely, and God's so far away, and my heart belongs to no one, so now I sometimes pray, please take the space between us and fill it up some way. And the sense of increasing disengagement in our cyberspace universe, in our increasingly fractured family lives, in the significantly isolated existence which so many people seem to pursue unwittingly and find ourselves increasingly removed from any sense of cohesion and belonging. And it is a wonderful, wonderful thing, is it not, to be able to put our heads on the pillow at night and magnify the love of God towards us that somehow or another from all of eternity he planned to have me as his boy. He planned to have you as his girl. And though your friendships may be broken and although your family background may not be all that it might be, and although there may be regrets and discouragements in so many different places, there is a wonder in the love of God here, insofar as he has done this for us, in order that we might be for him. And the reason that we could ever be for him is because he planned that it might be so. That's, you see, one of the, the wonderful things about a child as they grow to an awareness of parental love and they realize that somewhere in the mystery of it all, their mom and dad were looking forward to having them and to holding them and to nurturing them and to seeing them grow. To a far greater degree, our Father in heaven has looked down and made such plans and purposes very clear. We are for him then planned and we are also for him peculiar. You will notice that we are his very own. A people for himself. A people that are his very own. That's peculiar. To belong to somebody in such an exclusive way. And the fact is this morning, young people, we are not free agents. 
In Christ we have been signed to an exclusive contract. It's not sufficient to try and say to our world, you know, we're no different from you, as is so often apparently a cause for bridge building and evangelism. There is one sense in which we can say to our neighbors, we're no different from you, insofar as we relatively uh, put on our trousers the same way and drive our cars down similar streets and so on. But the fact of the matter is, we are radically different from our neighbors. Because our neighbors outside of Christ are still the objects of God's wrath. And we have been redeemed by his outstretched arm, have discovered the wonder of his love towards us, have discovered that he planned for us and that we are peculiar insofar as we are now all bound up with him. So that we are men and women of integrity in a world that is increasingly shady. We are men and women of purity in a world that is really quite dirty. We are men and women of reality and of substance in the cardboard California of Neil Sedaka, which you'll have to go now to the library to find out about. But he, this high-pitched singer of the 60s, had a song which I always remembered even in Scotland, which went, nothing is real in cardboard California. Just getting up brings you down. A sad and gloomy thought. What do I want to say into the heart of such an individual? I got up this morning in California and I looked out on the mountain range and I saw the handiwork of a God who loves me with an everlasting love. And it caused me to ponder the fact that while he had spoken in many and various ways of old by the prophets, that he had spoken finally and savingly in the person of his Son and that he had purchased me and was in the process of purifying me and he had made it clear that I now existed for him rather than that he existed for me. He planned that that was the case. And he wants me to be a wee bit peculiar for his glory. Well, let's just go to the third and final point. For good. For good. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, he gave himself for us that we might understand that we exist for him and in order that we might live to the end of goodness. If you have time in the next day or so, you read Titus, these three chapters, and reflect upon how much Paul has to say to Titus about goodness being a very clear evidence of a transformed life. Again, I have two points. In relationship to goodness, first of all, we are to be practical. We are to be practical. Verse 1 of chapter 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good to be ready to do whatever is good. What will that mean? Well, it will mean saying no to certain things. Like what? Well, saying no to slandering people. It will mean saying yes to peacefulness, to consideration, to, to genuine humility. And to whom do we show the humility? Well, just to people who are like us, just to the people who dot our I's and cross our T's, just to our little religious group, just to our holy huddle, just to our club, just to our Christian club. Not at all. And we are to show genuine humility towards all men. Because, he says, if you think about it, at one time, we were like all these other jokers. We were foolish. 
disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy. We were hated. We hated one another. Now, you say, well, I never did that. I was brought up in a Christian home. Listen, so was I. But all the latent potential of that was right within my tiny life. Again, when we sang the little song in the Sunday school, rid them out, get them gone, all the little rabbits in the fields of corn, envy, jealousy, malice, and pride, nobody had to get a blackboard out and explain any of those words to me. Because I was an envious little guy. I knew what it was to be jealous. I knew what it was to have spiteful and hateful thoughts even about those nearest and dearest to me. And if God had not reached into my life in his mercy at that point, then he alone knows how much those things would have produced of ugliness in my life if given the opportunity to go to full bloom. So it is a great mystery not only that God would save out of that kind of circumstance and lifestyle, but it is a great mystery and wonder that he saves us from it. And it is no greater to be saved out of it than to be saved from it. But here's the point. There's no place for smugness. There's no place for Christian snobs. There's no place for the Pharisee who on the street corner brought himself to his full and upright position and thanked God that he was not like other men and especially not like this poor bag of... I thank you, Lord, that I don't wear my hair like that. I thank you, Lord, that I don't have those funny-looking boots. I thank you, Lord, that my belly button does not have a ring through it. Now, you may want to thank God for that, but you know what I mean. I thank you that I'm not like any of this. And I hope they'll find something somewhere, but for sure they're not going to find it here. We are on the knife edge in relationship to these things in this generation, young people. There is an extreme polarization that stands before us right now. On the one hand, tune in and drop out. Go find a hill somewhere, climb up it with a bunch of your best friends who all believe the same as you believe, form a large holy huddle and wait for the return of Jesus Christ. To do so is to find yourself in a large and growing company of people and it is a wrongful, biblical, unbiblical emphasis. The other alternative which presents itself to you is to surround yourself by telephones and spend the rest of your life dialing 1-800 numbers to try and change the society in which we're living as a result of political clout and the manipulation of the psychology and political forces of man. And that also is an unbiblical emphasis that leads to bypath meadow. There is only one place to live. That is in the world without being of the world that is with non-Christian friends so that we may reach our non-Christian friends with the good news as a result of God's grace which has appeared to us. Because after all, I would be a non-Christian friend were it not for the fact that God had planned to purchase and purify me. When the Beatles came to Dallas in a long time ago before most of you were born, the church was ready to meet them. They decided that the young people should go to the airport in Dallas to welcome the Beatles. And so they did. And if you saw it on the anthology, you would have seen a little of it. And if you didn't, you can find it on newsreels anywhere else. But they were at there, they were there, and they had these big drums on the tarmac at the airfield in Dallas. And they had them there, these big old petrol containers, 
so that the young people who had been naughty enough to buy one of these dreadful, horrible Beatles songs, like, you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 she loves you, yeah, 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 she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if they were in the possession of any of this stuff, or, you know, I don't want to kiss or hold you tight, I'm happy just to dance with you, any of that really bad stuff, like I want to hold your hand, you were to bring it, and then they would burn it, so that when the Beatles arrived, they could say, whoa, we got a big fireworks party for us coming to Dallas. And so they did. And you remember that right at that same time, you've got uh, John Lennon making bizarre statements uh, concerning the popularity of the Beatles, which was responded to as a result of the burning of the drums in Dallas. And you remember Lennon saying, uh, it's, not, it's not that we're saying we are God, or that we're Jesus, or that we're greater than Jesus. It's just that we're saying we're very popular, and the young people are not going to church but they are coming to us. But we're not saying we're greater than God. Whoever God is, or whatever God is. What do you think? That he was about to follow down the path of the youth pastors with their burning petrol kegs to find out who God is or what God is? There's not a chance of it in the whole world. And I'm not going to lay the trip or the guilt trip at anybody's door but it is a classic illustration to me of the whole journey through the 60s and into the early 70s that is expressed in that one particular journey taken by those people because they took a complete generation with them further and further down in their discovery of degradation and further and further into confusion in relationship to religious things and then into Eastern mysticism and into all the confusion of it. Where in the world were the Christians? Why would you ever have to go to the Maharishi Yogi with that funny old beard and all that stuff, man? What a yo-yo he was, the Maharishi yo-yo as far as I'm concerned. And it's happening right now again today. There's not a week goes by. What was it, the most recent one, the, the, the lead singer of Blind Melon, 24 years of age, found in his tour bus at 7 o'clock in the morning in an accidental drug overdose. We say, well, I don't know those people. The lead singer of Nine Inch Nails graduated from Kenston High School, which is four miles from my house. So some of my Christian young people knew him. When the love of God for me breaks my heart, then it's going to create genuine compassion for other people. And when I don't have a genuine sense of compassion for those who don't know that same love, then it calls in question the depth to which I've understood the love of God towards me in Jesus myself. We've got to be practical in relationship to goodness. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And if you read the first 11 verses of Titus chapter 3, they are intensely practical. I'm Scottish, as you know. Scottish people are supposed to be mean. That's what they say. They claim that it was a Scotsman who invented the limbo dance, trying to get into a pay toilet without putting in the money. <laughs> and I must confess that there are certain things I don't like shelling out for. One of them is air conditioning. Uh, partly because 
It, it never seems to work, at least where I live. So I had my in-laws come over to spend a couple of days. Everyone's gone to bed. My wife and I are now lying on the bed because it's so hot. And she's saying, you know, don't you think you could turn the air conditioning on? I'm saying things like, it's only 97 degrees. Don't let's, don't let's get extravagant, you know. But eventually she prevailed upon me and I went down the stairs and I, and I flipped the, the switch and I smiled to myself as the noise kicked in. And I went back up and I laid on my bed and sweat through the whole night, wondering why it was that there was never an apparent change in the temperature. Because after all, the machinery was making the right noise. But there was no practical difference in the circumstances. And the reason was, somehow or another, because something wasn't joined up to something and something was flushing all out through the back garden instead of firing all the way around our house. They say, well, we don't want to hear about your air conditioner. No, I know that. <laughs> you say, he's going to take an offering or something now. No. <laughs> no. Hey, some of us are expert at making the right noises. We got all the noises down. But unless there is a practical change in the circumstances, it's not what Paul is talking about here in relationship to practical goodness. And loved ones, one of the dangers is, in an environment as blessed and encouraging as this, is that we become experts in the noises. Evangelical grunting when you have the little prayer times. What is that stuff? All the right noises. We are to be practical in our goodness. There is to be change which accompanies the noise. And finally, we are to be passionate in our concern for goodness. We are to be eager to do what is good. Zealous to do what is good. Absolutely, wholeheartedly committed to goodness. There are certain people in whose company it is easy to be bad, and there are other people in whose company it's easy to be good. There are certain people in whose company it's easy to tell a story that runs another person down, and there are other people in whose company you just feel like the worst heel ever to have even brought it up. And the commitment here is, Lord Jesus, you have loved me so wonderfully, given yourself for me, purchased me, planned for me, made me peculiar for your glory. Now you've made me concerned for goodness. Lord, help me. I want to be a good boy. I want to be a good girl. Sounds kind of trite, doesn't it? But that's what I tell my children. Now my son is six foot one and 185 pounds and 17 years old, and he can pick me up and move me around the room. And I constantly take him to photographs of him uh, washing his bicycle when he was three and four years old back in Hamilton, and he had a big sponge. It was nearly as big as him, and he was trying to wash the bicycle. And I keep these photographs around the house and every so often I take him and I put my arm around his waist and I move him over and I say, I, I, I used to put it around his shoulder but I can't do that anymore without standing on my toes. And I move him over to the photograph and I say, hey, do you see him? And he says, yes. And I say, do you know that you're him? He says, what are you talking about? I said, you're him. 
You are that little guy. Now I know you're six foot one and I know you weigh 185 pounds and I know you drive your own car and I know you have a curfew and I know you go out with your friends. But to me, see, I'm your dad, you're him. You're just an elongated version of him. <laughs> and Cameron, I want you to be a good boy. I know it isn't popular to be good. I know it isn't often cool to be good. But with every fiber of my being, I want you to be a good boy. And my girls the same. It is the passion of a caring father's heart. It is the passion of God the Father for each life in here this morning. He takes you as it were and he grabs a hold of you and he cradles you in his, in his hands and he looks into your eyes and says, I want you on the basis of the fact of what my Son has done on your behalf for us. To be clear that you now exist for Him. And in living for Him, I want you to be a good boy. And I want you to be a good girl. There aren't many times in the New Testament where someone is described as good, apart from Jesus. In fact, I can think of only one occasion right now. Others will think of more. And that is the son of encouragement, Barnabas, who was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. Boy, that would be a great epitaph, wouldn't it? That would be enough. She was a good girl. He was a good guy. From whence would this goodness emerge? From an understanding of the Father's love who gave himself for us that we might be for him, that we might live for good. Let's bow in prayer together. In fact, I think we're supposed to stand to pray. Since I finished a little early, which is in itself remarkable, you will uh, have an extra 10 minutes, I believe, before you're due to convene again at 10.30. And um, we look forward to a tremendous uh, time in considering some of the perplexing questions that surround the question of the love of God as John addresses that with us. Father, We thank you that when there's cloudiness and confusion, it's always on our side, that you have made yourself perfectly plain. That our Christian living is not easy, but it is straightforward. We thank you for helping us to discover in these days a wee bit more of what it means that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And we pray that in response to your love, driven out, as it were, as Paul said, for the love of Christ compels us. We pray that we may be fired by that compulsion to live to the praise of your glory. And that as trite as it may seem from one side, and as trivial as others may assume that it is, we ask that you would enable us to make a practical, passionate commitment to goodness so that 
others may see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father, in heaven. Hear our prayers and let our cries come unto you. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Thank you for your attention.